0: It is legends territory. We've got Todd Frazier for this week's episode for very good reason. And thank you to our MLB Players Alumni Association fam for setting up the best former player interviews out there. And check out baseballalumni.com for more info on your favorite former players. Quick reminder, if you're watching on YouTube right now, this is available on podcast form, Apple, Spotify. Check it out. Now let's bring in the next legend. 16 years in the bigs, mostly with the Reds. All-star, gold glove winner, Part of one of the most epic teams in baseball history, the 2004 World Series winning Boston Red Sox squad. And most importantly, your teammate, 2011, 12, and 13. You want to bring him on?
2: Yeah, the big man, Bronson Arroyo. What's up, brother? What's going on, fellas? Uh, nothing, man. Just hanging, man. Thanks for coming out here, man. Everything well with you? How's the singing going? Yeah, I had
1: a show last night. Uh, you know, it's been good, man. I put a record out in February. Um, but mostly around Cincinnati, just playing uh, cover songs, a bunch of Pearl Jam stuff and Nirvana, uh, you know, a couple times a month. But it uh, keeps my voice in shape, gets me out there, getting those butterflies like you used to before you, you know, you play a big, big league game, listening to uh, the national anthem. So it's a, it's a grind, and uh, but it's fun. Did you bring a prop? Uh, a guitar, you mean? Yes.
2: <laughs> Your best friend.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's always a guitar sitting next to me in my basement, man. I come down here to workshop new songs you know, about an hour, hour and a half every single day. So it's, uh, it's always sitting next to me.
2: You should have seen a little earlier. He was actually playing a little music for us before the show, a little one. So he warms up and everything he does. Like when we're in the, in the locker room, he's hanging in there in the corner. All of a sudden we're like, Oh, for our last 10 games or whatever. He's playing the guitar, right? Gets us back in the mood a little bit. And we start going on a run. Yeah. Yeah,
1: for sure. I'm still going down there now every once in a while in the Reds locker room and uh, playing some music, you know, it's, for me, it's a, it's a nice outlet to just be able to sing, but also, you know, it's not that often that you get to see a guy inside of a locker room, man, sitting outside the shower while guys are getting prepped for a game. You know, being able to rip off a bunch of songs with an acoustic guitar and kind of feel the energy and and the liveness of of the music right in front of your face, so it's uh, it can it can be fun sometimes.
2: Bronson, let's talk about this leg kick that you had. How did you develop that at such a young age? That was that a high school thing? Was that a college thing? or, or I mean pros like? When was the first time you said, you know what, I'm going to keep that leg straight, kind of manipulate the batters a little bit?
1: You know, it started when I was a kid. It was, uh, you know, I grew up down in the Keys. Uh, um, you know, my father and my mother on both sides of the family were from Key West, Florida and kind of a real isolated place. And for some reason, we had a satellite dish in the mid 80s and we were catching all the Mets games. And, you know, 84, 85, Dwight Gooden was an absolute stud with the, with the New York Mets. And he had kind of this high leg kick. And that was right around the time that I started, you know, transitioning from T-ball to, to pitch to pitch, you know, seven, eight, nine years old and, and what they call the minors down there. And uh, it was just kind of what my childhood mind morphed out of Dwight Gooden's mechanics. And I didn't really realize that my leg kick was a bit different than other people until we started watching ourselves back on film in the minor leagues. Because, you know, in high school, you're not filming yourself. And if you are, you're definitely not like going home and popping the tape in, uh, at least back in those days and, and watching it. So uh, I didn't really know that I was unorthodox until... They started talking to me about it in the minor leagues. And then, you know, there was a couple of coaches who tried to take it away from me, thinking that it was going to be a problem throwing strikes. But once they realized that I could still command the strike zone with that type of a leg kick, then they kind of left me alone.
2: That's pretty cool. And now I'm going to bring it back even further when you were younger. I remember you showing me the videos of you as probably five, six. I I don't know exact terms, but you were lifting heavy weights. And at that young age, I remember you and your dad, in the garage, getting after it. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it was
1: a unique upbringing. And and uh, it's it's weird because now, since I put this record out, I was I was trying to get on the Joe Rogan show. And I was I know he likes lifting and stuff. And so I put this little tape together for the publicist. And I started researching to see if there was anybody in modern day who pushed more weight than me. And I started looking up all the kids' records. And still to this day, I, I can't find anybody who's in the same universe with me. So on this one tape I have, and I'm glad my father finally filmed it, because if I didn't have this take, no one would believe this. But I'm eight years old. It's 1985. And I'm maxing out on squat, bench, and deadlift. We would do that about twice a year in between playing sports. And, you know, when you're when you a little kid or any time when you're maxing out, you're only making five, 10-pound gains, you know, every six months because you're pushing to the extreme. And But I'm eight years old. I weigh about 60 pounds. I squat 255. I deadlift 235 and bench 130. And what i found in the archives from records of 2023 our kids the weight that they are pushing was i'm pushing more weight than them in my warm up sets and you know it's wow. it's strange to to look back and watch myself on video like that because for me it's it you know it's, it felt normal then but watching it back now it seems totally abnormal when you when you're hanging out with an 8 year old and you realize like putting 250 pounds on any 8 year old's back seems impossible but it was just something we we started as a very young age, you know, I threw a baseball across the infield when I was, you know, five. I had never played catch with my father, and it looked like a twelve-year-old had been playing for a few years. And so he just thought, "Let me put him in the weight room and at least get him a free education in college." And and him and his friends had already had this, from the 1970s, this crew of guys who were who were powerlifting and they were squat, bench, and deadlift. And they were, you know, these guys were pushing, you know, six six seven hundred pound squats, and same thing with the deadlift and benching, and you know, in the mid four hundreds. And so uh, it felt natural to us, but looking back on it on video, it's, it's very odd.
0: Did you think you were going to be a professional power lifter and not a major league baseball player?
1: No, it was, it was always tailored for the baseball. You know, my, my father was not a baseball guy, even (laughs) though he was born in Cuba, but he just knew that if I was a little stronger, it was probably going to give me the ability to be a better athlete. And this was in a time, you know, when parents were constantly telling my father that you're going to stunt his growth. And. You know what are you doing, and 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 he just was a little bit ahead of the curve. You know he was taking me to get massages when I was a young kid. I was going to the chiropractor. There was, you know, there was things that he was already mixing in that that made sense to him just from kind of like a you know a two and two equals four mentality. And uh, as I got into minor league baseball, even some of these things were looked at upon as like taboo. You know, and then years later, you find that hey, every major league locker room has a chiropractor. Every major league locker room has guys who are getting IVs and there's a nap room and all these things. And he just kind of he turned my brain on for for strategy in that way to kind of like pick up all the pieces of the puzzle um, to, to build, kinda, you know, a, a full career. And and it took a long time for the game to actually catch up to that mentality. And nowadays you see that, you know, you ask why are athletes throwing so much harder now? It's because they're doing all the things that I was doing as, as a kid, but they have bigger and stronger bodies by birth.
2: A hundred percent. And I couldn't agree with you anymore because now you see these guys pitching and all of a sudden they're like doing crow hops and throwing the ball as hard as they can into the net. Like, do you see all this stuff these guys are doing now just to get bigger and stronger? And it's like you were the, you were kind of like the Kickstarter, this whole thing that nobody really even knew about, you know?
1: Yeah. And it was, it was a bit of a confidence thing for me, you know? I mean, Kurt Schilling told me in 2004, when he he didn't really know me in spring training, he said I was too thin to throw 230 innings. And, you know, 06, I throw 240 innings. And part of my ego, uh, or really all of my ego in the game lied in throwing in 200 innings and finding a way to stay healthy. But people didn't know what I had been doing for my whole childhood when other kids were just out playing and They were throwing on their uniform last minute to go to the ballpark. You know, I was carbo-loading a couple nights before. I was taking supplements. You know, I was living a lifestyle of a Major League Baseball player because of what we were doing in the weight room, and, you know, other people weren't privy to that. And so it not only made me physically strong, but it made me mentally strong to deal with the grind of 162 games in spring training and everything that comes along with the dog days of summer. And, And if you look at the second halves of a lot of my seasons, you know, in August and September, I would have really good numbers most of the time because I wasn't mentally burned out like a lot of guys would be early on in the career, like a Johnny Cueto who was thinking, man, I just can't wait to get back to the Dominican and have a beer on the beach. I was Mm -hmm. thinking, you know, I'm going to win four more games here in the back half of the season.
0: Now, was it mostly lower body? Because you're not, you know, Mark McGuire, Jose Canseco here with the upper body. And also I would guess years that that was not the move for you anyway because you want to maintain your flexibility with your upper half, right?
1: Yeah, I was just... um, I, I was fortunate that i'm kind of a, a long lanky guy who's just loose by nature so you know that w- one part of it was that i really wasn't going to have a body you know i'm 6'4, 152 when i graduate high school so there was no way to to really blow that body up unless you were gonna eat twice as many calories and be in the gym three times a day like an arnold schwarzenegger you know and we weren't lifting that way we were lifting low reps heavy weight so we would never be doing more than sixes. So there was never a time when I was doing 10s and 12s and 15s on squats or even bench. So because you were doing a a small amount of reps, you weren't getting that huge swell. You weren't getting that real blood filled pump that you want when you're going to the beach and you look good. You were just feeling really strong. And so I had this tiny, skinny little body. I was always the skinniest guy on the team. Um, But underneath, that, I was housing this this type of um, strength that was extraordinary. I, I can remember being like in seventh grade and talking or doing something, you know, in PE and, and having a coach say, Hey man, give me 25 pushups. Like it was, a, it was like a, a you know, a, uh, like a real harsh thing he was putting on me and I did those 25 <laughs> pushups and I could see the look on his face was like, what was that? Because back then I could do 25 pushups almost like I was just doing them in the air. You know, I weighed, I weighed, you know, 55, 60 pounds, maybe 70 pounds and, and to push, you know, that body weight was very, very easily. And so, and so, um, you know it was something that we were working on just to be strong and my father just deduced that that should help me in some way down the line
2: now i, I want to that that's a cool story i just want everybody to know about that i thought that was one of the cooler things i've seen uh, on your flip phone you still have that flip phone or what you've had that for like 30 years probably now no <laughs>
1: yeah the flip phone man the flip phone was like an, it was an evolution i got rid of it in 2018 i got stuck in uh after i retired i got stuck in brazil seeing a Pearl Jam show and uh, their tour manager said, hey, right, this is one of these shows that like as soon as the show's over, we're running out the back door and, and off. So we get in front of these 60,000 people coming out of the stadium and I missed the tunnel to where the bus was leaving. So I, I got stuck at the stadium with a flip phone and it didn't have any directions on it. No way to call Uber and they're speaking <laughs>
0: Portuguese.
1: So it was like, it was kind of gnarly and I was thinking I need to get on the network. So I finally got rid of it. But, you know, that was the thing that, That started because, uh, you know, around 2006, we got these flip phones that came out. And and when the iPhone hit, I just loved my flip phone. And as years went on, though, it became something that was a nice conversation piece for me to have with some younger guys. And to, to look at an older veteran in the locker room who was living a bit of a simple life, you know, maybe ride his bicycle to the park once in a while and wasn't spending a ton of money on watches and shoes. And and to see that flip phone was a nice conversation starter for the fact that you know, you're gonna make a lot of money while you're playing the game, but you better house it away because one day we're, we're not gonna be able to work deep into our career. You know, if you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you can, you can make money until you're 70 years old. But as, a, as an athlete, you know, by the time you're 35, you're probably hitting the wall. And so I kept it all those years just for the simplicity of that and to have those conversation
2: pieces. Really, really cool. Really cool. I'm Alex
0: Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal.
2: So 2004 Red Sox for you guys going down 3 nothing, coming back. For me, I went to game six and game seven in the bleachers. It was a long story short. I bought the wrong tickets for games. I bought game seven tickets, went there game six. Somebody saw me pissed off. I was cursing up the world. So that guy said, give me 75 bucks. You're going to bleachers. Went back to back. And all of a sudden you guys get on that epic run. You got A-Rod swatting the ball out of your hand and that kind of kickstart I'm, I'm out there and I will feel like what the heck just happened you know those are kind of the craziness that went on talk about 2004 a little bit and the stories and the shilling and all that kind of good stuff you guys had in that whole crazy run
1: yeah it was you know it was it was a buildup of two years you know I'd come from Pittsburgh I've been in that organization for eight years not knowing the culture was different in, in other organizations and so when I got picked up off the waiver wire by Theo Epstein just prior to the 2003 season started I went into that into that camp, you know, in Red Sox camp in Fort Myers. And it was the first time I'd been with a new team. And I was kind of like learning, you know, the way that they kind of operated and realizing that, you know, like I said, the culture of different ball teams was different. And really quickly I realized I was in a place that was geared towards winning. And when I was with Pittsburgh in a lot of, you know, a lot of ways, I mean, they would say stuff back in the old days, like, you know, we're going to have the best in shape staff. We don't care if we w- lose a hundred games, you guys are going to be in great running shape. And, and when I got to, to Boston, I realized that there was another way to slice the pie and it was like, no, it, this is all about winning baseball games. And we don't care if you're in shape or not, it, as long as you can pitch. And so I really enjoyed that mentality, but Oh three, we obviously get beat Yankee stadium by Aaron Boone's home run off Tim Wakefield and extra innings in game seven. And that's, you know, a whole deal onto itself. And then you you come back 04, we pick up Kurt Schilling, and we've got t-shirts that say this is the year, and the cowboy up stuff stuff starts, and we got a crazy locker room, man. I mean, Kevin Millar was really the, the the ringmaster there who was just kind of making guys like Manny Ramirez and David Ortiz come out of their shell and realize they could be who they wanted to be inside that locker room as long as we played the game hard. And it was really the wildest locker room I've ever been around, hands down. I mean, between Pedro Martinez and Derek Lowe. You know, Nomar was there early on in that season, but you got Johnny Damon. I mean, it was just a a man's man's team, man. I mean, Jason Baratek was the captain. It was like, it was an all-star club, and I was just fortunate to be kind of flying under the radar, trying to put up quality starts every fifth day at age 27 and 28. And so by the time we got to the playoffs in 04, it felt like, you know, this was the year we're going to do this, and then we blink and we find ourselves down three games to none to the Yankees, and it looks like, wow, we're going to get beat again this season. And then obviously game five, Game four, game five, Ortiz pulls those off in extra innings, you know, by winning the game with a home run and then a blueprint to center. And then we get to game six uh, where you're in the house, Todd. And yeah, after A-Rod knocks that ball out of my hand, I mean, you remember the riot crew came out on the field and they were throwing batteries and stuff onto the field and, and beer bottles. And just, it was almost like, it felt like a war zone in a lot of ways. I'd never been in that type of environment before, but it it made me realize that I could pitch anywhere, anytime, any place. And it's part of the reason why when I got to Cincinnati in 06, I really had a great season that first year because I almost felt like pitching in the National League was a little bit of a, there was kind of a weak link there because not only did you have the pitcher hitting in the nine hole, but I didn't have guys like Jorge Posada hitting in the eight hole dropping 25 homers in a season. So the lineups felt like there was a little bit more breathing
2: room. Did you throw a battery? I did not. I was rooting for the Red Sox. out to time. I was like, you know what? This can be an epic comeback here. This to be one for the ages. So I, I knew I was going to play with them. Isn't that weird? I was in college now. Yeah, I'm, of I'm course. Just, no, I'm just. That you were going to play with the Yanks? No, for Bronson. Oh, with Bronson. You were like, <laughs> no. yo, I'm rooting
0: for my teammate, man. I, I already
2: knew ahead of time. Yep. I knew this is my teammate coming up. See you in with
0: 10 you know. years, dude. When you say, I, I'd never seen you know, an atmosphere like that, what, what was it? Were there particular instances where you'd be like, that does not occur anywhere else but right here?
1: Yeah, you just had, you know, you've never been in a locker room where there was so many great players who also had quirky, you know, things about them. I mean, you had, you had, there was some times when Pedro was, you know, coming to the ballpark at 530 for a regular game and I'd never seen anybody come that late and nobody even blink an eye at it. And then I looked up his stats and it was like 104 wins, 30 losses in a red Sox uniform. And you're like, okay, I get it. And then, you know, there were days that he'd be cussing out the media and telling them, don't talk to me for the next month. You make your money. I'll make mine. And then, and then other times he'd be in a great mood and just be running around, butt naked, Uh, you know, Manny, Manny was one of the quirkiest guys I've ever played with. I mean, I would take a nap before every game. Todd probably knows about 5.30 to 6 o'clock. I'd take a Mm -hmm. nap for a 7 o'clock game. I'd wake up sometimes and Manny would be spooning me, just sleeping behind me. (laughs) It was just a crazy locker room, man. I mean, you know, Derek Lowe was super ADD running around. We had Curtis Laskanek, man, who had two screws loose. You know, Kevin Millar was screaming at Terry Francona and Theo Epstein every day about, you know, 6.40 before the game started. The music's playing. He's taping up. He's treating them like he's his kid you know, just hollering and screaming at him. It was just a locker room that was just like, there was so many guys you couldn't control because they were great ball players. You know, Johnny Damon is like doing naked pull-ups. I'm saying seven minutes before the national anthem. And then you just blink and he's out on the field and opens up the game with a triple. <laughs> and you're like, dude, I don't think this guy's wearing underwear for the game today. That's so awesome. it's like, it was just a locker room of guys, man, who just had character and charisma And we knew we were good and and Kevin made it okay to do anything and say anything. So it was just, you know, Pedro later in that season had brought the smallest man in the world named Nelson from the Dominican Republic. And he was running around the locker room cussing everybody out in Spanish. And, and I remember Jack McCormick, the, the traveling secretary looked over at me. I was putting my tickets in and he said, he goes, Bronson. He's like, what is that bird doing on that chair over there? And I said, that's not a bird, man. That's Nelson, the smallest man in the world. But he was so little sitting on his his lazy boy chair that he looked like a bird to Jack because he was like, you know, Jack was getting (laughs) up in age. But just a locker room that felt like a circus half the time. And then, you know, you'd go out there and play quality baseball and beat teams down. And then you'd get back on the bus and Kevin would be on the microphone just getting after it again.
0: Did you feel like the team was ahead of its time in the way that they were able to be themselves. It's really only in the last, what, 10 years or so that rookies can come up and say, I'm not just going to be hazed all the time. I I can do what I want. I can even try and command a clubhouse. I can flip bats. I can be myself personality-wise, even if I am quirky or crazy. So do you feel like that team was an outlier, but
1: also you're seeing more of that nowadays? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was... You know, I came up in that pirate organization and, and man, people like laugh at me now when I say for three years, I got dressed up for three years. I was like eating my food in my locker, you know, not saying a word to anybody. I mean, they treated you like a rookie in the early 2000s until you got through arbitration. You know, now that now they consider you a veteran after you've had 100 days in the, in the big leagues. And, and so it was a totally different dynamic. And that team, I believe, was an outlier. Like you said, teams were much tighter much quieter. You know, you couldn't really be that loose inside of a locker room, but this team was so good. And Kevin was kind of like, was going to make it with his mouth. He was just going to be kind of like a Will Ferrell in a way. And he was just going to make it okay for guys to kind of do and say anything. And you found, you found that when Schilling came over, we we heard stories like, you know, don't talk to Schilling or Randy Johnson the day they pitch. And so when spring training started in 04, you saw that where nobody was speaking to Kurt, you couldn't say hi to him on the day he pitched. And then About a month into the season, if you walked in our locker room, he was sitting there playing cards with the guys the day he pitched because Kevin was so vocal about he was Kevin's the type of guy who would call you out in front of the whole team and be riding you in a funny way. And you couldn't combat him because he was so witty that, you know, he'd be calling shilling out like, you know, on the day he pitched in front of everyone. And then eventually you just realize like, hey, I'm going to relax inside this locker room. There's going to be a lot of crazy stuff going on, but when we go out on the field, we'll be serious and we'll play the game the right way.
2: That's funny because you really think like the leader in a clubhouse, like it's a pitcher or a catcher. Like what I would think, my question would be, how about like Jason Veritek? Was he a vocal guy? Was he a guy? Because he's the one that got in that big brawl with, you know, you, you threw the pitch at A-Rod. That's what I want to ask like about this whole thing. Was Veritek a leader? And my next question was that pitch thrown on purpose to hit A-Rod? Like, what, what was the whole saga going on over there? Yeah,
1: well, I mean, Jason Jason was the true captain of the team. I mean, when we went into pitching meetings, he was more buttoned up than any catcher I've ever been around in the game, hands down. You know, when I was with the Pirates, you know, we had Jason Kendall as a catcher, and sometimes, you know, he would just kind of sit on the floor and listen in the meetings as everyone else did. But Jason would have, you know, he'd have an encyclopedia-sized um, notebook, and, and he would be kind of commanding the pitching meeting and he also was also a guy that out on the field was so flexible you know he told me I don't care what you throw Bronson you can kick the ball to me as long as we get three outs and 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 that that openness and that that freeness that he gave me out on the mound really made uh, me feel comfortable especially coming to the Red Sox you know at, at such a young age in a lot of ways um, but he was he was really kind of a quiet leader in a lot of ways you know Jason if he had to say something he would. But he was a guy that if you were going to the mountaintop and you wanted somebody that you knew needed to try to kill a grizzly bear with a, with a pocket knife, I was taking Jason Veritek. And so he wasn't he wasn't the most vocal guy, but he was this underlying strength that he brought to the to the to the clubhouse that you knew that when, you know, if the shit was going to hit the fan that he was going to be there for the war. And that's what you saw that day with Alex was, you know, there was no intent there at all on my part. You know, I've heard through the grapevine that Alex was a big video watcher. And I didn't pitch inside at the time a lot. I was getting away with a lot of breaking balls on the outer half and fastballs on the outer half because the American League didn't know me a whole bunch coming from the National League for a while. And so with Alex, you know, everybody knew he had a kind of a hole on the inner half and he loved to drive the ball to right center. So that day I was I just went inside and I was just doubling up inside, which is one of the you know, one of the things you constantly hear in your career, which is you got to double up inside to be successful. And so I was just going in there with a sinker. It was, you know, 87 miles an hour just got away from me trying to stay in there and hit him on the elbow pad and he he got irritated and there was there was a lot going on between those two teams even if you take away alex rodriguez but he obviously is a guy who could be a bit of a a lightning rod for for a team you know you know he looked like he was very cocky and brash the way he played the game he was also very good and and also inside that rivalry i mean there was fights going on in the clubhouse i mean out in the stands constantly i mean in 03 you got to remember that game when don zimmer gets thrown thrown down by pedro martinez That same game, Kareem Garcia in right field jumps over the wall and him and Jeff Nelson fight one of our security guards in the bullpen in the middle of that playoff game. I mean, it's like pandemonium. And so um, every time we got together, it was just – you just needed a match to be lit, man, and something was going to blow up. And that's just what happened that day.
2: Yeah, that must have been really exciting. Now, just a quick question here about, like, after the whole thing, have you and A-Rod ever talked about the whole situation? You know, let bygones be bygones, something like that?
1: Never, never have, have run across Alex. You know, it's funny. I, I was, um, I, we have traveled in the same circles a a bit where I've run into somebody who he's run into. And, um, Julian Tavares, I played a a little surprise show in Boston when I put that record out in February and somebody bear hugged me from behind and it was Julian Tavares. And, uh, Julian said he hangs out with him all the time. And, and he said, Hey, he kept saying, Alex doesn't hate you, man. He wants to hang out and, and, uh, and have lunch. And, you know, I'd love to sit down and talk with Alex because from Matt Krause, who you know is our strength coach with the Reds yep. for many, many years. He was over with the Yankees. And he said, Alex is one of the, the greatest baseball minds he's ever been around, just absolutely loves the game and is almost like a baseball nerd in a way. And uh, I think you see that on TV. I mean, I think what he does on air is, is, is pretty special. And, uh, but I've, I've never got to have a conversation with him. Wow. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft CoPilot. That feeling when CoPilot gets everyone up to speed instantly?
0: cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at bluenile.com that's bluenile.com okay i want to take you to the cincinnati reds current squad because going back towards the beginning of the interview you said um you still play music for the team sometimes so you'll still yeah. pop by like even have you done that this year in 2023 oh yeah 2023?
1: yeah i've been in there i've been in there a couple of times and uh yeah played some music for the guys and and uh, I'll just kind of randomly stop down. I think I'm going to come down in the next uh, few weeks and, and plug this little speaker I get in. Yeah, I just, I'll just I'll just play for the guys sometimes. You know, I used to do it when I was with Todd all the time. But it's it's a whole new generation, and nobody in that locker room really knows me except for Joey Votto. But I'm going into the Reds Hall of Fame this year, and it's just nice to be connected with a ball club. in a, In a way, you know, if you play three or four years with a team, you might not be able to do what I've done. But playing nine seasons and going into their Hall of Fame and being really good to the clubhouse guys over the years, allows me to kind of walk in that door in a way that like i'm still an active player and i know that's unusual but it feels good to have a place to kind of call home like that
0: are you gonna go up to ellie de la cruz and be like dude i can squat more than you
2: (laughs) (laughs) no i
1: just tell him i can squat more than you when i was eight (laughs) When when i when i um when when I showed that tape to Gabe Kapler, he was he was running the Dodgers minor league system at the time, 2015. I was hurt for the first time, and when I showed Gabe that, because he he absolutely loves lifting weights. I've watched him send out emails in the middle of squatting and deadlifting 400 pounds while he was 45 years old, and and uh, his jaw was on the ground. And he was like, "Can you still push this kind of weight?" And I'm like, "No way, man! I I don't even want to put 250 pounds on my back now, much less you know something equivalent to four times my body weight."
2: Hey, I want to talk about. The new rule changes here in baseball, um, especially the sticky stuff. You've seen guys pretty much getting caught for having rosin on their hand, a little too much rosin. Can we go back to when I played with you for the three years? You would go back into your little corner after each inning and the concoction you had there in front of you. Um, how many games would you think you'd be getting for this concoction you had? down here? Oh man,
1: that science project I had gone, they might've kicked <laughs> me out of the game for good. They would have me right next to Pete Rose.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah,
1: you know, where, where that whole thing started, I've been saying forever, the league just needs to take the baseballs and rub them up with the mud and then add a little bit of pine tar and a little tack to them. And now they're finally coming around to finding a pre-tacked baseball. And you know, People don't realize how hard it is and how different it is. The baseball at the big league level is different than in the minor league level. And in the minor league level, they use the ball over and over and over again at the big league level. As soon as it touches the ground, they throw it out. So you're constantly getting a baseball thrown to you from the umpire that has kind of a a powdery substance on the outside of it, which is the mud they rub balls up with. But when it dries, it turns almost like baby powder. You take that to a, a young rookie who's then maybe pitching in September or October you know in yankee stadium in the winds whipping and there's no humidity it feels like you're throwing a cue ball off a pool table with baby powder on it there is no way to command that pitch and so for me early on in my career i figured out that if i could just get a little pine tar on the ball and just rub it around and make it tacky and fix the ball then i wouldn't have to deal with it so much and so you know without having some sort of a grip on the ball there's no way to be effective especially for a guy like me who's throwing you know eighty seven to eighty nine on a good day, I'm touching ninety. I needed to be able to spin the ball for strikes. And so you know, you just had to find ways to do it. and And I would sit down in that little corner and I had this this uh, I had this concoction, which was I would clean my hand from all that black stuff off the ball. I would clean my hand with with uh, without rubbing alcohol and then put a little rosin on it, and then I would just take pine tar and put it on my left hand and my glove, and I would just tap the ball and ru- and just rub it and get a little stickiness on it. And it wasn't allowing me to do anything I shouldn't be able to do it was just basically fixing the ball in a way. And, um, you know, they've been, they've been opposed to that for such a long time in baseball, but I think they're going to finally get to it because it's just a waste of time to have guys out there who have all kinds of weird stuff on their neck and all over the place trying to figure out how to get a grip on a baseball that you should have a grip on anyway.
2: Yeah, but you forgot a couple other things. You had your fruit there too as well. You had your banana. I think you had an apple. Wasn't there some kind of food there too as well?
1: Yeah. I'd have some, I'd usually have a banana. I'd have some applesauce. Uh, a lot of the stuff I picked up in Boston. Uh, I also had a, I had a, like a caffeine drink that was this lime green and, and it was this red drink. That was a hydration drink. And both of those came from a company that Kurt Schilling, um, actually introduced the Red Sox to a, a lot of, a lot of that year in 2004, I'd have my friends say, what is that red drink? You guys are always drinking in the dugout. And they, they would actually mix that drink for the whole dugout in each water bottle for the Red Sox. And it was like a hydration drink. But, uh, yeah, I had this whole thing going on and part of part of being off the bench also started back in 2004 and what it was is I realized that down in the tunnel, first of all the cameras weren't on you, right? And so you could kind of relax a little bit more, not feel like you had eyes on you. And the other thing was it was it was really hot outside, it was cooler in the in the tunnel, and if it was really cold outside, it was warmer in the tunnel. And so it was a way for me to relax, kind of get away from the game, you know, the way that I thought about pitching was not about striking guys out and being out there for five innings. It was about can I can I make it through the seventh? You know, I was trying to get deep in ball games and pitch 200 innings year after year. And in order to do that with a guy who was only throwing in the high 80s, I felt like I had to pick up every little crumb. And part of that was to be down there and have that food and have that ability to kind of relax away from the cameras.
0: Yeah, that's wild. I mean, you know, Scherzer's dealt with stuff like that with the sticky stuff earlier in the season. He's like, I swear to my kids that... All I'm using is is sweat and rosin. So it's been talked about a lot on our shows throughout this time. Um, I want to ask you one more question. Reds related. What do you think about this current team? How much are you watching Cincinnati Reds ball? They've kind of taken over America's team. uh, A lot of young guys that have developed really quickly and been good in the pros right off the jump. Um, Does it remind you of, you know, young Todd Frazier coming through with the club and you guys making a little run back then. And what 2012 was your best year
2: 20, as a team. I think it was 2013. 12, well, 13, we got beat by Pittsburgh in
1: the playoffs. Oh, 12. 12, we had a chance to win the whole thing. That's when the giants came back from Oh two right. and, and, uh, swept us to, to, to knock us out. But, um, you know, those are some good teams. I'd say, you know, I, I am watching a lot of Reds games these days. I, I've watched since I've retired. Usually I like to see the starting pitching, but this team has been, you know, kind of a extraordinary in a way that watching the offense has been crazy exciting. I mean, we haven't had this many steals, haven't had guys who, like you said, come to the big league level, like right out of the jump and are feeling comfortable and are doing well. I think the only guy I've ever played with that I can remember doing that is maybe Mike Leak and, and Jonathan Papelbon where. Right out of the gate, they look like they were big leaguers. And, um, you know, it's it's strange to have that many young guys do that all at one time. And I'm just, I'm really happy for the organization because a lot of the trades they've made in the past obviously haven't panned out. And this last time they they made it to the playoffs, I think in uh, maybe 2019 before the pandemic and getting rid of guys like Bauer. And, and, you know, there was some guys who were in that in the organization for a while that, you know, like Eugenio Suarez. And people thought, what are you doing getting rid of these guys? But. You know, guys like McLean and like De La Cruz, I mean, they are just showing, you know, steer. These, these guys are really holding it down like they've been playing the game for four or five years. And not only are they playing well, if you watch their interviews, they know what's going on. They're not giving you a bunch of sugar-coated fluff, man. They're 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 articulating the the, the important things about the game and that it matters as a team. And that is, that is hats off to, to the organization kind of holding the line on, on the current manager and the current you know, coaching staff and their, their scouting staff and really believing that they were getting some young guys in the pipeline that were going to be able to make a difference. And the city has come alive and people are in the ballpark. And it's really, really fun to be around the stadium right now for the first time really since 2013.
0: This episode is brought to you by Hyperice
2: Do you remember in Pittsburgh, I think I brought this up to you a couple times, you and, you and Sam LeCure were like really tight um, during the time in Cincinnati and I think Sam had to start the next day, something happened, you know, somebody pitched too many innings, so like all right, we need a bullpen day and you said, you said, Fraze, you're coming out with me tonight and I said, all right, that's cool, I'm game, whatever. So you said, it's five minutes down the road. I'll meet you down down in the lobby in about 30 minutes. I come down there. You got a stretch limo out there waiting just for me and you (laughs) to go to the club five minutes away, man. We had one of the fun nights in our life. I was just flabbergasted about you getting that stretch limo. I was like, man, you know what? I need to go out with this guy more often. (laughs) Well,
1: you know, it's like. As you know, I mean, every team party that was ever thrown, I threw it, I paid for it, and every rookie that was dressed up, usually, I, you know, I made those mixtapes on the bus, and, and uh, you know, it, it just felt really good. You know, early on in my career, I got hazed pretty heavily as a Pirate, and I kind of took the best parts of that and kind of housed it and threw away all the stuff that I thought was worthless and, and really um, detrimental to a big league ball club, to having like a gel, and so – by the time I got to the Cincinnati Reds, I was I was a bit of a of a veteran coming from winning the World Series. And once kind of Griffey left and Adam Dunn left, and and it was that whole group of guys like yourself, Todd and Jay Bruce and Joey Votto and Mike Leake and Homer Bailey. You know, I wanted to I wanted to put down an atmosphere that was serious about the game, but also, you know, was fun. And you know, going out at night and and all the crazy stories you hear about the old timers. I mean, I wanted to test the water sometimes and see. Um, you know, if we could have a good time as well, but still go back to the ballpark and be serious about the game, and still have winning baseball. And it was, you know, it's it's part of my legacy in a way of the stories that guys will tell about how many times I went out, or or, or, or you know what you did at night on your boat and or playing music somewhere in a weird place, you know, out on the street in Chicago and people hanging out, and then and then and then also throwing 200 innings and not missing a start for. You know, almost 450 starts in a row I went in my career before I missed one. And people couldn't quite understand how I could do both. And part of it was the fact that, you know, I was just reasonable about my schedule. It was like, yeah, maybe we went out that night, but I'm surely wasn't pitching the night after that. Right. Like I only went out nights when I knew I could go out late and and, and stay out and still get my rest and and get my workouts in at the stadium and get your massages and all the things that come along with being a big league ball player. And uh, I enjoyed every bit of it, man, playing hard and and, uh, having a good time.
0: Let's finish with the album then. So it's called Some Might Say. You released it this year. And am I right that, you know, I know you released one many, many years ago and that was more of a cover, right? This is the first original that, that you've released, a full album?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I put that cover album out in 2005 and that was just basically a collection of songs that I loved as a kid from the 90s. And then, you know, I retired in uh, after 2017 and I I was getting the itch to see if I could write songs. I had always written, you know, kids' songs and stuff, but never written something that I thought I'd want to hear on the radio. And so I went out to LA with some guys I met in 2004. They're all New England guys. We had played many shows together for um, Peter Gammons and Theo Epstein's Hot Stove Cool Music in the wintertime. And these guys are all on uh, big stages every night. My one guitar player, Jamie Aronson, is out with Matchbox 20 right now, but he's normally Miley Cyrus's guitar player. And my drummer, Eric Gardner, is out with uh, Melissa Etheridge and, and Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine right now. So, you know, it, it's a it's a group of guys that I wasn't sure how far we could push it as a group because they're pretty busy, but I wanted to be able to write something original. Took some riffs from those guys, flushed through about 24 songs in a year and a half, and um, 10 of them made the record. We recorded it out in uh, Silver Lake, uh, California. And, um, you know, it's been fun to play some shows. We played the two-innings fest Innings fest, uh, with Dave Matthews and and um, and Eddie Vedder uh, during spring training, one in Arizona and one in Tampa, and um, you know it's just nice to have an album that I can call my own. These stories came from my brain, and um, you know it'll it'll be there for the test of time. And I think probably you know my great great grandkids or something or, or or my sister's kids they'll they'll probably pop an album in and listen to it long before they're gonna break out a VCR tape from 2000 and watch Bronson pitch in a pirate uniform. So so it's nice to leave something that that uh, in the world for when I'm gone.
2: That's awesome, man. Good for you. You're still doing it. Proud of you, man. I had such a good time playing with you. You kind of kickstarted me to be that kind of leader and that veteran leadership to be for me, especially. You know, not that hard-nosed guys. You know, there was a time and place certain guys you can, you know, get on their tail a little bit and talk crap to, but other guys you smooth them out. <clears throat> and I appreciate that. But my last thing I want to say is, not many people batted a thousand off of you, and I think I I might have been one of the only people that ever about a thousand off you dude you know that i did not know that was that who were you with at the time i was with no you were with arizona and we played you I, i'm only right. two of bats two for two, two, for two. two. <laughs> <laughs> that's right i was like what are we yeah, talking yeah. about here that was,
1: that, that was a special day for me honestly because i was pitching against you guys and and my shoulder was tore and so was my elbow for the first time in my career and it was oh. the first time i'm starting to feel a little handicapped but I was also pitching against a group of guys that I felt like I had raised in the game. And it, it, I hadn't had a smile on my face getting my butt kicked like that since I was <laughs> 10 years old and pitching against my best friend who grew up next door to me in little league. And, and that, that day was special. I gave up a grand slam in the first, I think, and you guys got on me pretty hard. Uh, Mesraco hit that grand slam, but uh, we came back and had a chance to win the game off a of leak. And uh, so it was, it was a fun game, man. I, I i would never forget being on the mound that day and being like, man, I feel like I'm pitching against an entire cast of my best friends. And It was uh, it was very unique.
2: Yeah, I, f- I felt like I was hitting off my dad. And I said, I, I couldn't let it. I <laughs> couldn't let this happen, <laughs> Beat him I,
0: up without a shoulder.
2: Yeah, well. You said
0: he didn't have a shoulder. I
2: hit one right back at him, too, which I-, I felt bad. I remember you looked at me like, yo, what the heck? And I'm sorry. I'm like, my bad, my bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and me- Mez Rocco knew me so good from catching me, man. I threw him that first pitch curveball, and
1: he just whacked it out of the park. But it was yeah, I mean, that's probably the only time I could say I was having a good time getting my butt kicked on the mound. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that, was, that was a super, super fun day, man. And seeing you guys at the hotel, you know, the next night was great. I, I, was, still, I was still missing playing in that uniform. I wanted to be a Cincinnati Red still at the time, and they just didn't want to sign me. And it was, it was kind of a bummer that I was looking at you guys across the, 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 the field thinking, man, I, I really enjoyed grinding with these guys for so many years.
0: Hey, well, congratulations on the Reds Hall of Fame. Congratulations on the album. Have fun watching the Red Legs because it's been a minute since they were putting together consistent winning like this. So it's cool to watch. Enjoy your time when you're visiting the ball club. And thanks for the time with us, man. Appreciate you. Yeah, guys,
1: man. Good stuff.
0: And you can catch all of the Legends Territory episodes on Foul Territory's YouTube channel or on apple or on spotify and thanks the mlb players alumni association for putting all of this together and for more information on your favorite players hit up baseballalumni.com we'll see you next time on legends territory